Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Yes. Um, it's going to sound cliche, but I'm actually going to say it. Um, yes. I'm going to say, stay true to yourself. Um, no matter, no matter what happens, like, yeah, trust your instincts and stay true to your first inspiration. Hey, it's Ryan from the prolific creator where we talk about life and art and see what sticks. And hello, my friends. Today, we have another fantastic interview with Aaron Puchijan, who is a poet and a translator and a teacher. And I've been really enjoying having poets on the show. Uh, I've been getting into poetry a little bit myself, but Aaron is a really helpful guide and a really helpful teacher, shares a lot of his story of how he got into poetry and the different kinds of poetry uh, that you can write and get into and get some helpful recommendations of his process and books and things to inspire you for those that are thinking about poetry. And, and I think poetry is very applicable to the creative process. It's, it's amazing how many people I talk to that um, write poetry, um, whether to get published or just for fun um, and just to get words on the page and just to kind of think through just the kind of economy of space and, and looking at different images and, and metaphors and things. And, and I really just find it a helpful exercise, even if it's something you just do for fun or keep to yourself. Uh, poetry is a beautiful art form. And so I'm look, really looking forward to talking to Aaron about his poetry and his journey and his story. And I think you're really going to love it. And so my friends, I promised I would be back and I am back. Uh, and it's April and we are launching more and more episodes, getting those back into the orbit, the creative orbit. So thankful for that. And, uh, be some more coming down the pipe as well. And so, as I, I mentioned, uh, before get on the website, ryanjpelton.com, check out the newsletter, all the updates, articles, resources, links, latest podcasts, other cool stuff. There's also free resources on the website. Check that all out. And uh, my gift to you. So hopefully it's helpful in your creative journey, whatever you're creating and making and doing. And also if there's anyone that you want me to talk to uh, yourself, making whatever you're making, whatever you're doing, whatever you're sending out into the world, love to interview you, talk to you, uh, shoot me an email, let me know. Or if you have someone in mind, uh, I can track them down, stalk them uh, legally 
and uh, and and find them and uh, talk to them. So, um, without further ado, here's my conversation with Aaron. Well, Aaron, welcome to the Prolific Creator Podcast. So glad to have you on the show and uh, so glad this finally worked out. And I'm re- actually really excited to have you on the show because I've had a few different poets and uh, people that are excited about poetry and writing poetry. And that's a lot of your background. Uh, so I'm really excited to hear your perspective and your passion for getting people involved in poetry and the poetry you're writing and the translating and all kind of cool stuff. So I'm um, really excited. And I'm really excited because in a selfish way, I've been actually getting into more poetry. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from you, hearing from you. So, so Aaron, why don't you say hello and tell us one thing that only your closest family and friends would know about you. I used to um, want to be a rock star. Um, I didn't write poetry at all when I was in high school, but I just practiced my guitar over in, yeah, in my room locked up. It's not an uncommon thing for an American youth, um, but that I didn't come to poetry until I was 18, and then it changed everything, and I would just decided I would do that from um, there on out. Um, and so, yes, like many an American teen, I wanted to be a rock star. Nice. So... So tell me more about that. So uh, it seems to be a common thread that some of the poets I've talked to, there's a, a musical background typically, uh, and maybe because songwriting poetry can kind of go hand in hand. Some would even call songwriting, you know, poetry in some form, but yeah, where like, were those kind of colliding things? Were you writing songs where you are just playing guitar and have any aspirations in that? It's- Thank you for bringing that up. It's an interesting question for a number of reasons. Um, I lead with my ear when I write poetry. Some poets will say you start with an image and then the poem crystallizes um, around that image um, or that the image is a kind of catalyst. Um, I have written poems that way, but most often I work with um, sonic motifs. I'll write a line I like the sound of. Um, And because I work a lot with rhyme and off rhyme, the sound is particularly important to me. Um, So I'll start um, with a line I like the sound of, and then I'll come up with other lines that are in the same sonic register, the same key, if you will. Um, And I will, yes, Um, We'll talk more about this later, I suspect, but I'll eventually keep working until I come up with um, something I'm comfortable performing live that is a musical composition. And so you're right. I think those weren't necessarily wasted years for me in high school um, when I was um, working with musical motifs. Um, And then when I started writing poetry in college, um, I've always since then led with my ear. Also, a lot of the poets that I teach, um, I teach ancient Greek and Latin. And so at the beginning of the Western tradition, um, the poets I like the most, like Homer and Sappho, for example, they are pre-literate. Um, and Sappho in particular, I um, translated her, um, wrote songs originally in a pre-literate culture. And so they were handed down by word of mouth until eventually they were written down and made their way in a fragmentary state 
to us. Um, and so I have, I see a very close connection between songwriting and poetry, and it's especially close for me because the sound of the lyrics is so important. Nonetheless, the with poetry, when you're writing um, song-like poetry, which is what I'm all about, um, I dare say that it's harder than writing lyrics for a song because you have to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, because when you're writing a poem, you have to imply the background rhythm. Um, when you're writing um, song lyrics, you have the drums and the bass to keep the rhythm for you. Right. And you can do variations, rhythmical um, variations, variations over the top of that rhythmic background. But with the poetry, when you get into your flow, you have to both provide the background rhythm, imply that. Right. The regular rhythm of the lines and do substitutions and variations over that um, implied rhythm so that it does not become monotonous. Um, and so you're doing the full work of the band with just your voice. Oh, I like that. So, hey, yeah, hang on to some of the, those thoughts as far as just poetry and music and connections and how, how we do it. I got a couple of questions on that um, later. But um, you mentioned before we, we got on the air here that um, you grew up in South Dakota and, you know, I imagine a small town. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, so a lot bigger uh, city. You're, you're in New York now, but um, I have a good friend from Iowa. And one of the things that he he said, and I'm not sure what decade you grew up in, it doesn't matter that much, but there's something about when you grow up in a small town, sometimes you're looking for culture or you're looking for something that's bigger than just what's here. And, you know, music was often for my friend, one of those things where he got into this, <laughs> the music scene of, you know, punk and hip hop and all this and realized, you know, rock and roll, there's this bigger world that's out there. So just tell me a little bit, just kind of your background, like South Dakota, like when were you, you know, exposed to music and literature and, and poetry? Like how did that all, all begin? Was that something that you were always around or was that a new thing until you got to college or talk us uh, about some of that? I was lucky in that um, my father was a philosophy professor and I'm an, I was an academic brat and my mom taught literature at the local high school. And so I was lucky in that I was exposed to a lot of literature and ideas early on, but also I was lucky in that there was no pressure on me to do anything practical mm -hmm. or to do anything that would make a lot of money. Um, and thus it was all right that I become a poor poet. Um, but um, yes, um, it was very lonely growing up out there in the plains. And I, was, I think I was just born ambitious. And so um, it was frustrating for me to find role models for the type of person that I wanted to be. And more often than not, rather not since I was not finding it in my small hometown, um, the role models that I wanted, I would find them in literature. Um, and so early on, um, I encountered poets, even before I knew I wanted to be a poet, um, whom I admired greatly and after whom I would model myself. Um, poets like W.B. Yeats and even the great Italian poet Dante Alighieri, um, the author of the Divine Comedy, um, and I remember, yes, vividly sitting in my front lawn, reading this terrible translation of the Divine Comedy. Um, yes, um, at a very, at a pretty early age, an understanding probably about twenty percent of it at the time as I was that I was reading it. 
<laughs> well, that seems like a, a common, common tale. I think how people get into arts and literature and music and things. It's, it's when you don't have those examples or pictures or, you know, you can't go down to the local, whatever near you, if you grew up in a small town or, you know, where there's not a whole lot of culture or whatever. Um, but they become kind of those voices. They become those kind of mentors in a, you know, and most of them are dead anyways, but they're, you know, de- either dead mentors or people that we can pick up. And that's what's so powerful about a book or a piece of art. It's, it's living forever. Um, and we have access to it. Um, so I, I love that. So, so tell me like a little bit of what were like some of the early influences when you think of literature, when you think of, of poetry, what was it that kind of, kind of, even before you knew you're going to, you want to do poetry, what were some of the things that kind of struck you or, um, you know, mess with you in a good way, I, I should say, you know, something that you kind of said, well, there's something here. I'm not sure what it is or why I'm drawn to it, but w- what were some of those early experiences with poetry? Yeah, certainly. I have to say um, the poetry of W.B. Yeats, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest of the Irish poets. Um, I encountered him young and he stayed in he stayed with me throughout my life. And I still when I'm um, I fear I'm going to come down with writer's block, I will turn to Yeats um, and he can remedy the situation um, most often. Um, And so. What I liked about that, um, Yates, when I first started reading him, is actually his um, early phase um, when he's really dreamy and mythological. Um, The Yates before the sparer modernist straight-talking Yates emerged, where he's writing about fairies and Irish mythology. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I liked most about it, and what has um, stuck with me, um, is the incantatory quality of his verse, right? Where the lines, his lines, if you read them aloud, or even if you read them in your head, um, they have an almost magic or spell-like quality, that someone is intoning words that can effect magic. And that is what I strive towards um, in my own poetry. And so I, yeah, in a sense, I'm always trying just to get back to that original awe that I felt in the presence, um, yeah, when reading W.B. Yeats. Um, So he was very important for me. Also, um, I got a curious taste. Um, I liked Alexander Pope. Um, he's an Augustan age um, British poet who writes in rhyming couplets. He wrote a lot of didactic or educational poetry, essays and verse. You couldn't be more unpopular right now than Alexander Pope. Um, but he blew my mind when I first read him, just the sonorous quality, the resounding quality of those couplets. And I hadn't looked at him for years, and he's certainly very out of style. But I re- I started rereading um Pope just the other night and enjoyed it just as much as I did when I was a 17 year old. Now, when you're, um, when you're starting out, uh, are you, especially like, you know, you mentioned 18 years old, you know, college starting to get serious about poetry. Are are there, I mean, are you going back to Yates and saying, okay, I'm going to just kind of mimic him. Um, you know, this is, I don't really have anything to go on or did you have your own kind of voice or style? I mean, how, how did that work? Cause I know in different art forms, you know, whether you're writing, you know, novels or poetry or making music, there's always that, you know, imitation when you start out, but were there, did you find yourself kind of imitating the voice or did you have a certain way that was kind of your, your unique voice or talk us through that a little bit. Yes. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's a great question. And, 
I've, this is my general advice for people starting out in poetry, that you'll have poets you like the most, and it's okay to steal from them, and it's okay to imitate them in the beginning. And what you want to do is not just um, take their voice in general, but um, imitate specific poems, right? Even just try when you're first starting out, taking their words out and putting words that are more relevant to you in there. And then eventually with your imitations, when you feel you've caught the same amount of charge, the same amount of electricity that the original has in your imitation, then you're ready to set out on your own um, and come up with your own compositions. But I've been writing poetry for, I don't know, like a million years now. But I still often, when I start, I'll start by playing around with lines by a favorite poet of mine and swapping words in and out. Um, and then I'll get a couple lines I like like that and then a whole poem will come out of that. And I'll end up usually changing that first line um, so that it's no longer recognizable as even related to what it started out as. Um, but it's a question of um, frequently when one is um, yeah, trying to come up with a poem, of finding a catalyst or a way in. And the lines of other poets frequently for me are that way in. And then when I have a couple lines I like, um, I will, um, well, a series of lines I like, I'll try pairing them. Um, it's kind of like, um, my process is, um, sort of like when you're camping and you're, have you ever gone camping? We've been Boy Scouts, um, where you go camping and you try to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together. Um, it's sort of like that. I'll have two lines that I like, or a series of lines that I like, and I'll try to pair them and rub them together until I get a spark. And then the fire, if it starts, is the poem. Right. Um, and that's um, most often how my process works. Yes. So tell us, tell us more about the fire. So um, I want to hear, there's always this, these moments or a series of moments or even multiple years where obviously you were going to go into college to do this and get serious about it. But what was kind of the fire that, you know, started you saying, I really want to do this like this. I can see myself writing poetry. I'm, I'm all in, you know, whether anyone pays me or not, um, I'm going to do this. Like, was there a, a series of moments? Was there a person? Was there a teacher? Was there uh, that kind of lit that fire in you? Um, when I was 18, I, I described this, it's strange to talk about it, but I had, I can only describe it as a religious experience. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was still into music. I was a music composition major, at the time, and I was looking at a humanities textbook um, that had the Greeks and Romans in it. And in it were the opening lines of an epic poem by Virgil called the Aeneid. And I didn't know Latin, um, but I just read them aloud to myself. Armo virumque cano Troiae qui primo saboris Italiam pato profugus lawinaque venit. And the sky became brighter, and it just became very clear to me that I was supposed to spend the rest of my life writing poetry, and I needed to learn Greek and Latin as well. Um, and that's what I did. Um, it's been yeah, I'm 48. It's been 30 freaking years. Um, but um, for some reason, I just never for better or worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. I have been doing this, yeah, for 30 years. And it never really occurred to me that I would do anything else after that moment. 
And so in some ways, um, people, when I tell that story, people say that I'm lucky and that I really didn't have those years where I was trying to figure out um, what I was going to do with my life. But I always joke in other ways, I'm unlucky in that I'm going to be poor my entire life. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I guess, I guess no regrets, no regrets. Yeah. It wasn't the religious experience of you're going to, you know, build multi-billion dollar companies, you know, uh, it was, you're going to be a poet. So yeah, just, uh, I should have been getting into tech, but I didn't <laughs> right. Uh, no, but I love that. And I think, you know, there's probably a, you know, a piece of that too, where you were kind of maybe f- trying to figure out, you know, what is my life going to be or where, where should I, you know, give my energy to and vocation and all those conversations where you're doing music and maybe finding that maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, or it feels like, you know, I'm, I'm hitting a wall or something, or it's just not settling the way I thought it would be. And then you find this kind of new um, exposure to poetry and it feels like, yeah, this is right. This is where I think I need to be. Now you've, you've obviously, you know, been doing this a long time. You've, you've taught a lot of people um, written your own poetry, you know, gotten degrees, all kinds of things. Um, you know, I think when I talk to people that are interested in poetry and where to begin, um, they already have this kind of picture in their mind. Okay. It needs to rhyme and it needs to, you know, be this, what we learned in elementary school, you know, trying out different kinds of poems and what have you haiku or whatever. Um, where do you suggest, you know, let's kind of do like a, almost like a masterclass in just poetry. Like someone's beginning and they're thinking, okay, I want to, I'm interested in this. I want to do my own poetry. Where do I begin? I mean, do you have to worry about style rhyming or is it just kind of just go for it? What, what, what's your suggestions there? Generally, I mean, there are so many different kinds of poems, but generally, yes, you can tell what kind of poetry poet you want to be from what kind of poetry you like. Um, that will tell you if you want to be a free verse poet or you want to be a formal poet or you want to be, there are many different kind, other kinds of poets as well, right? A language poet. Um, and then also um, you want, um, because it's hard to just go be creative in a vacuum to say, I'm a poet. I'm going to go write a poem. Now I'm going to go write a poem. What am I going to do? What's it about? It's overwhelming. There are too many possibilities. And then you give up. Um, and so it is good to choose Use um, formal constraints, some kind of form that has constraints, because it limits the number of options there are to choose from so that they aren't infinite any longer. Um, And that allows you then not to be overwhelmed by the possibilities. And that's one of the reasons I find, I at least find formal poetry inspiring, right? And that I'm given in many, in most cases, a structure now I build my own structures, but I used to rely on given structures. Um, and, you know, then um, there's it's part of it, a certain percentage of it there, at least in the beginning, was like a word game. Right. Um, and it was just figuring out all the possibilities and which would be the best one here and which would be the best one there. And so when I teach also and I give prompts to my students to write poems, I want to give them just enough that they'll have a launch pad, right? A launch pad for creativity. I don't want to say, just go write a poem and bring it in next week. Go be creative. (laughs) Um, Because the possibilities are overwhelming. And so I'll give them poems that are inspiring and then say, you can write a poem model on that one or a reaction to that one or one that it does, yeah, that works the same tricks. Um, 
but you want to be interacting, um, whether it be with your own experience or with other literature in a poem, because otherwise, yes, you're just being creative in a vacuum. Um, and the possibilities, as I said, the infinite possibilities are overwhelming. I'm excited, a good place to start also, um, this is a new genre that's become popular and I'm excited about it. It's micro poetry, um, short poems that are have to be short enough to fit inside a tweet box for Twitter or um, an SMS message, like a text message on your phone. And a micro poetry has become really popular and it's credited in fact, with increasing um, the amount of poetry that's read among the younger generations. Um, and that it's become so prominent on the various social media platforms. So that the usually despairing um, and National Endowment for the Arts assessment of what's happening with poetry actually was optimistic in 2018 when the last one came out um, and reading the readership of poetry increased um, among yeah, the younger generations. And so we can be optimistic about the future of poetry. Well, and I, I, I'm wondering too, like my own experience the last few years, I've, I've got started reading poetry again. I, I had a long time ago and kind of got back into it, trying to write my own a little bit. But um, I, I like poetry because it's accessible. It's not it's not asking you to read a 300 page you know book. I mean, it's a, not a huge time commitment on many levels. I mean, there's a lot to it. And that's what I love about it, because every time you read it again, there's more you see more you see more. But but yeah, there's something maybe to that that micro poetry idea. You know, is it just you know, attention span, we're busy, but you can get into some good poetry. You know, I, I read, you know, I've read some micro fiction. That's really great. I mean, hundred words or less, and, and it kind of leaves you like, you know, hungry for more. And I, I like that because I think to get people into it, especially you're not going to say, Hey, read this, you know, 50 page poem or whatever, but you know, here's this few lines that can kind of get you, get you excited about the, the craft. Um, so I wonder if there's something to that. Maybe that's good or bad. I don't know. Maybe it's our attention deficit disorder that everyone has, but um, no, I, I like this. This is really helpful. I think the the coming back to the boundaries is really good. Uh, and I think on a lot of art forms, whatever we're creating, you know, whether writing books or poetry, it's, it's, I think reading a lot, um, seeing different styles gives you kind of boundaries to say, okay, I don't have to be overwhelmed. Like I can kind of lean into this particular way of doing it. Um, and not just like, I like what you said, not do, you know, art in a vacuum or poetry in a vacuum, uh, is really good. Um, now let's talk a little bit about kind of your, um, process, um, the way you come up with ideas, because I, I liked earlier, you were talking about music and the, the lyrics and putting two different ideas together or two different lines together. Um, are you, um, you know, carrying around a notebook? Are you looking for ideas? They just kind of pop in your head. I mean, how, how are you? Cause I know a lot of poetry is really about paying attention, paying attention to the ordinary things of life, stuff going on around us, a line here, a word there, a phrase there, but tell us a little about your process. Like how do you begin kind of writing your own poetry? I do, as I'm walking up um, from my um, apartment, my tiny apartment in the morning to my writing space, um, I do collect impressions of the city and I write a fair amount um, about Manhattan in particular. And so often those impressions I collect, whether it just be of like, a, I don't know, um, a breakfast vendor um, in a kiosk on the street 
or um, yes, it's Manhattan. So you see rats everywhere. I write about rats a lot. Um, yes, that those certainly make their way into my poetry. I'm in a point now where I'm figuring out what the next book. I had a book come out fairly recently, and I'm figuring out what the next book will be. But I'll talk a bit about American Divine. My process for that was to try to bring old time religion to um, 21st century America. And so I work a lot with the Greeks and Romans um, and they have it's a polytheistic religion and they write a lot about epiphanies of the gods or meeting the divine. It's also, there's this great word I love, the numinous, which means an experience of the divine. And so that whole book was an attempt to capture, um, yes, um, contemporary religious experiences, um, some of which I had, some of which I'd read about, um, and to um, present them um, to the contemporary reader as a kind of alternative, right? As a kind of more intimate religious experience than one often gets from our contemporary religions. Um, and so that had a theme and I was writing, I did a poet's version of research. I read a lot um, about American religion and contemporary religions. Um, but you, yes, it's hard to do. You don't do research for your poet, poetic writing in the same way you do academic research, certainly, right? Mm -hmm. You just try to expose yourself to a bunch of things. And then suddenly it's like, yeah, you get the aha moment. Oh, I can use that. Right. And then I put it in a file. Um, I don't have a notebook. I'm left handed and writing was always very cr clumsy for me. And so I tend just to collect things in random in random Microsoft Word documents. Mm. Um, I have hundreds of them, messes of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I, the, you know, I heard Stephen King one time say years ago in a, a lecture he was giving or workshop or something. He's saying, you know, ideas like where do you get your ideas from? And it's like this, you know, imagine like a, um, you're collecting sand and you're through this, this strainer and it's like the gold always just kind of comes to the top. So you take all these ideas and thoughts and phrases and, you know, hot dog vendors and religious experiences, and you kind of shit, you know, sift it out and see what kind of sticks around. And it seems like those ideas are the ones that we kind of keep coming back to that we're excited about, or we're, we're thinking about more than the other ones. And the other ones we just go, okay, that maybe that's for another time or maybe never. Um, but I think, yeah, that's, that's, you know, a lot of the people I interview and, and things we talk about in this show is, you know, where do ideas from, you know, come from, how do we start, how do we get going? And it's amazing how it is those ideas that just kind of keep haunting you in many ways, you know, they keep just sticking around and then you, you, you read this, you, you hear, you have this conversation and then all of a sudden there's this theme that kind of emerges. And then it's like, I have to do this. This is where the next thing is. Um, no, thanks for, for sharing that. Now, do you have, um, I know, you know, poetry again, I've heard different poets on, on this show and I've read, you know, read about different poets. Um, you know, poetry is not very long, so it's not like you have to do it eight hours a day. Um, but do you have like a particular time in the day or, um, you know, days of the week that you say, I'm really devoting myself to just whatever comes out, comes out. Um, how does that work for you? I decided, my goodness, it was about 10 years ago now that I would be a full-time poet. Um, and what does that mean even, right? Um, I decided I would write eight hours a day, work on poetry eight hours a day. Um, whatever else, you know, I could go longer if I wanted. 
Um, and then I have to, whatever I did to make a living, in addition to my poetry, would have to be outside of those hours. And so that's when um, joining this um, writing space in New York um, paragraph has been really good for me. It's like a gym membership. You pay a certain amount and you come to this place that's absolutely quiet and you just sit and write. Um, and so, I, yeah, I tend to keep pretty regular hours, um, nine to five generally. I can't actively create for eight hours a day. There's just no way. Mm -hmm. I'm usually sharper in the morning and it flows out of me in the morning. And then I'll turn to revi revision in the afternoon or I will do other things. For example, like, like now, um, an interview. Um, but um, I decided I would, yes, the, when I realized uh, um, that I wasn't going to go the academic route and have a permanent academic job, and I was kind of grateful when that realization finally settled in, um, I decided I would have to do this um, in order just to feel good about myself full time. Um, and so it's hard to make creative work fit inside a nine to five box. Mm. Um, and you have to accept like no normally in your job, you're expected to be productive every day, but my job, sometimes it's like fishing, you go fishing and the fish aren't biting. And so I will sit and play with these lines and try to make something happen, try to start the fire um, for eight, you know, well, for three or four hours before I turn to revision and come up with nothing. Um, but you just got to be philosophical and accept that that day the fish weren't biting. Maybe they will be tomorrow. That's good. No, and I, I think there's a there's a hard hat. I, talk, I call it a hard hat creative where you put on your hard hat and you have to, you know, there's days where you just don't feel it. You don't have any feelings toward it, but that's just work you have to do. And, you know, and, and you just pray the muse or whoever, or, you know, God shows up and helps you along. And some days it's going to be great. Some days it's going to be terrible. Um, but that's just this kind of workman quality. And I think it's demystifying. It's partly why we do the show is to demystify some of that too, is there is a mysterious piece to it, of course. Um, but there's also just a getting up every day and doing the work and putting the words down and seeing what sticks today and, and what comes of it um, as much as we want some kind of formula or, you know, do this, do ABC and, and all your dreams will come true. Um, so uh, no, thanks for, for sharing that. And I, I think that will help a lot of people just as they think through their own process too. Um, now you're in the, the poetry world. And for those listening that are interested in poetry, um, getting started, maybe they're writing their own poetry. What is, um, this is something I just have no you know, experience in or background in, but what are, where are places that you can share your poetry? Um, whether that be publications, whether that be, um, I know you have a lot of, you know, poems out there. Um, but what are, where are pl places people can kind of get started to kind of share some of their work when they get serious about actually getting it published or reading poetry? Um, what have been some of your experiences in that? Many. Um, and so the, venues in which you can publish your poetry, they've multiplied um, astronomically um, since the invention of the internet um, and other forms of social media and just digital communication. Um, and so um, it's very, it's easier now than ever before to self-publish um, if one chooses to do that. And there are also um, an abundance of literary presses um, that publish um, poetry books. Um, the trick is, of course, as always, making money. Um, and so 
I, I have a couple things to say on this, right? Um, yeah, don't feel you have to, right? I'm always happy when I make money off of a poem. There's really no better feeling on this earth, right? Um, I can't believe I just got paid for that. I know, what a coup. Um, but um, most of the time still when I publish, I'm not making, I'm not getting paid for the publication, right? Um, the trick is not to let anything out into the world, into the, whether it be on social media or in a journal or in the New Yorker or whatever, until you're, until you're comfortable with it being part of your legacy, right? You've written something, you're excited about it. The instinct is to get it out there as soon as possible, right? But you should only ever publish something anywhere if you are comfortable with it being associated with your name forever, right? In the past, things used to disappear into the obscurity of print, right? They'd be bound up with however many um, copies of a journal were printed. But now with the internet, if you put something out there, a poem out there associated with your name, it will be there forever, um, and so um, what I want to advise aspiring poets, right, um, is, um, yes, be excited about what you're writing, right? You definitely want to be, and you definitely want to share it with people, right? That's essentially, that's what this is essentially is about. Um, but nonetheless, hold off and wait until you're absolutely sure that you want something to be associated, yes, to be part of your legacy, um before you put it out there yeah it sounds almost like the you know the whole ten thousand hours kind of idea you know putting in the work yes. do, doing a lot of bad poetry until you feel really confident about where you're at and getting getting good at it. and i think that's probably the blessing and the curse of self-publishing and internet is is just things can just be kind of thrown out there you know against the wall and really we haven't really honed our craft and we're just kind of throwing things out and hoping that something sticks um, but that's good i like that having your name tied to something you know that, and i think there's probably a sense of like being proud of it that it's not just um you know i tried and it's not very good but here it is um and i think you know for people i i uh follow austin cleon i don't know if you heard his name at all but you know he's a just a you know writer artist, all kinds of stuff, but he's always talking about sharing your work and putting it out in public, but he does it a lot through his blog and it's not finished things, but it's just a way to kind of put it out there and, you know, try things out, see if it works, see if it, see if people resonate with it and then say, okay, now I got something. Now I can go back and kind of work, work at it and make it even, even better. Um, there's a lot, a lot more avenues to do that for sure. Now let's talk a little bit, Aaron, um, just as you think about your own career and your own journey of poetry and creativity and teaching and all that. Um, what are some kind of lessons you've learned along the way through failure? Um, things that you've kind of, maybe you were idealistic about in the, in the beginning, or you thought this is how you do things and then realized, you know, this is kind of where I've come around to, to, to realize this is kind of where I'm at now. And these are some lessons that I've, I've learned. I want to share any of those, like, anything that like, comes to mind, just kind of lessons learned from failure. Yes. Um, it's going to sound cliche, but I'm actually going to say it. Um, yes. I, I'm going to say, stay true to yourself. Um, no matter, no matter what happens, like, yeah, trust your instincts and stay true to your first inspiration. And so I had, when I had that sort of religious experience when I was 18, um, I had this great rush. Um, I could feel my synapses firing. And that was the Vatic big kind of poetry that um, I wanted to write. And so in a sense, whenever I would be writing in the future, I'm trying to get back to that original inspiration and try to 
fire all my synapses at once, if you will, with something that I have created. And um, partly because of the formal poetry that I write, um, and partly because the voice is very, is different from a lot of contemporary poetry, um, I had a lot of trouble getting published in the beginning. Um, but um, I kept on, I got better, I would like to think as well. Um, and then it got to the point where hopefully the, I mean, I guess what happened was what I was writing was, um, poignant was convincing enough that editors couldn't resist any longer, even though it was so radically different from uh, much of contemporary poetry. And so, um, I am grateful that I stayed true rather than altering my style or my interests in order to make my poetry more marketable. I stayed true to that first inspiration and thus I have no regrets and it eventually has come to fruition, right? And that I've yeah won some prizes and put some books out and stuff. Um, and so, um, yeah, stay true to that first inspiration, that your youthful in, your youthful enthusiasm for poetry, and it will animate your work throughout your life. No, I, lo- I love that too, and I, I think that almost comes back to what we talked about earlier is just getting your work out there is with the access to social media and internet and, you know, being more connected is that you, you don't have to have these big groups of people to enjoy your work. You know, some call it the thousand true fans, you know, it's just finding that niche, finding that kind of voice that people really resonate with. And it doesn't have to be the masses, you know, to be successful or to, 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 you know, make a living doing this or find fulfillment doing it. And I think that's really important and to do what you really, you know, you want to wake up every day feeling like, this is who I am. And this is what I'm true, true to my own voice, not trying to be something because everybody, especially in you know, I'm around a lot of writers and novelists and things is they, they just want to write to market. You know, they want to write what sells. So it's like, well, I'm going to write romance, even though I hate romance and, but I know it sells. And so I'm just going to crank out these books that, you know, people will pay me for, but you know, I, I hate going to bed every night because I feel like a, you know, sellout. Um, but you know, selling, looking at the long game and saying, Hey, these are, this is, these are the kind of books that I want to write. This is the kind of voice I want to write in. This is kind of who I am. Right. Um, I love that. That's really, really good. Um, now, um, Aaron, just as we kind of get to the back end of, of our interview here, um, let, let's talk a little bit just about not, not failure necessarily, but on the positive side, you know, if you were to have a bunch of aspiring poets, creative people in front of you, and you can look back on your you know journey here and say, you know, here, here are some, some truths, some poetry truths that I want to share with you, you know, one, two, three truths that are just essential, vital, important. What would be those truths that you'd want to want to share with, uh, aspiring poets, current poets, creative people. Um, what would some of those be? I know you already said stay true to your voice, but what else? Yes. I, well, related to that also, yes, is what I'll say next. As I said, I was talking about this with friends, that the music that stays with you throughout your life, that moves you the most throughout your life, at least for me, and I think and they've agreed with me, is it is the music you were listening to when you were go th- going through puberty, right? That's the music that stays with you and is most significant to you. And I've stopped resisting that. I mean, because it's really embarrassing, the sorts of things I left- <laughs> listened to back then. Um, but when I, yeah, have my, um, put on a soundtrack in the background, it's those songs from when I was, yeah, an adolescent. Um, similarly, I want to encourage aspiring poets um, to stay true to those poets who, um, and keep looking back at those poets who first moved them when they were young, right? Um, and so I 
find um, I used to read more widely in my 20s and 30s, but now I find myself rereading and rereading and rereading the same poets and the same books um, over and over again, trying to figure out how they could do it. And the funny thing is, they're the ones I liked when I was just 18, when I was just starting out. Um, and so I'm trying to get back to the yeah, sort of like the original miracle of these books. Um, and so they really do. They have an infinite depth and stay with you forever. Um, and so, yes, on the positive side, I would say, um, yes, um, throughout your life, keep checking back in. Um, with the poets that moved you most when you were first writing. But on the flip side, I'd also, and this is a way of continuing to grow, I'd felt that I'd gotten everything. I um, had reached this point where I'd felt and I'd got, I had gotten everything from the poets I liked the most. And so how could I keep growing and not, you know, yes, be limited, sort of waste away in this sort of status quo that I'd reached? I started reading poets that I had, read a little bit of as a young man and hated um, and really resented. Um, and I came to like them. Um, I wasn't big on a lot of the beat poets on like everybody else. I wasn't big on a lot of the beat poets when I was growing up, but I've started reading them now and it's been really good for me. Um, in that, yes, it's loosened me up in a number of different ways. And um, I always had a penchant for slang, but the beats are particularly good at it. Um, and so they gave me a green light on using living, yeah, all kinds of living language. And so, the, yeah, those two bits of advice, um, I would say, right? Keep yeah. checking in with the poets that originally moved you. And then if you ever need, had a knee-jerk reaction in rejecting a poet, um, and didn't read much of that poet, go back and read it later in life because there are reasons people liked him or her. Well, I think you, you tapped into something too. You know, when you think about the classic books we were supposed to read in high school, no kid is ready for half these books, you know, at that time. I mean, they're boring. They, they're hard to read, but then you come back to them. I mean, I found that as an adult, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, reading these things going, these are great, <laughs> you know, and I just, I think I wasn't ready for them. And I think sometimes that's what happens when you, you're exposed to art at a certain time in your life and you're just not ready. And, and it's, you know, later on you mature, your, your taste buds change a little bit. Um, I think that's really great advice. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if there's anything that just comes off the top of your head, I know you could probably list a million, um, any, any books, uh, of poetry or particular poets other than the ones you've mentioned already that people should just get into, especially just as they're, they're kind of figuring out, Hey, I don't know what kind of poet I am, or, or I just want to get my hands on some good poetry. Anything that comes to mind? Yes. Um, I think I've read one perfect poetry book in my life, and it is by Philip Larkin, a British poet, and it's called Whitson Weddings. Um, every time I go back to that, I'm just in awe. Every single poem is a home run. Um, and they're arranged in such a way in that book so that it's not just a collection of random poems, but the whole book is a gestalt. It's more than the sum of its parts um, and means something different as a book. Also, if you're just getting started, um, a great place to look for inspiration is the poetry of Sappho. Um, an ancient Greek poet who I mentioned her just in passing, who originally wrote only songs. Um, she is it's 
is so intense. I wish I could, I want to sustain charge or electricity or intensity in my work throughout an entire collection. And everything she writes is supercharged. And I am in awe of her. She's like Saint Sappho to me, (laughs) my patron goddess. Um, And so I would, yeah, I would suggest um, Philip Larkin's Wits and Weddings because that uses contemporary speech um, in traditional forms. Um, and that's a really interesting combination. And then Sappho, just if you want to be in awe of something. That's great. No, I love the the divergence, the difference of those, you know, the ancient and the new and the, I think that's good. It's good to have a good wide um, examples. Uh, so Aaron, this has been, been awesome. And uh, you've helped a lot of people um, with your perspective and your sharing your experiences and your, your journey along the way, but tell people what you're working on right now. Um, what's coming out soon, what you're working on, and then where people can find you. Got it. Thank you. Um, I have a sequel to my verse novel, um, Mr. Either Or, coming out um, next year. Um, and that is, that'll be available on Amazon and in some, available in some poetry bookstores. Um, but, um, yes, that I also did an audio book for that. And that was a lot of fun. Um, yes, available on Amazon. And then, um, if you want to find me online, um, yes, um, there's www.aaronpuchigian.com. Um, also I'm, yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, as at Puchigian. I was the first in my family to get it. All right. <laughs> well, Aaron Puchigian it has been a, a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your, again, your experiences, your uh, tips and tricks and, um, and all the best and everyone go check out his work and we'll put all that in the show notes so you can find them and, uh, and go, go read some good poetry. So thanks again, Aaron. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, my friends, Aaron Pushijan, and he is a poet, a translator, a teacher, and I'm so thankful for him sharing his story about getting into poetry, uh, former wannabe rock star, as we all have been uh, turned poet, and uh, I love just the ways he shares his process and his habits and his rituals, and, and you begin to realize in the creative process, everybody's different, uh, but hopefully as you listen to these interviews and hopefully as you kind of engage with them and think about them and your own work and your own thing you're trying to make um, is that you don't have to do exactly what Aaron does or other people have done, but to find kind of your own way and find what works for you. But the most important thing is to be able to create and be able to get those things on the page or get those things on the canvas or get those nonprofits started or businesses started, whatever you're making, whatever you're sending out into the world. It's, it's really about putting the, the work in, putting the butt in the seat, if you will. And uh, so hopefully this will be an encouragement to you. And uh, before I sign up, sign off, uh, check out the website, ryanjpelton.com. Sign up for the newsletter. All the great resources are on there. Latest podcast updates. And uh, yeah, and say hello. I'd love to hear from uh, folks. Hello at ryanjpelton.com. And let me know what you're working on. Let me know where you need help. Let me know where you need encouragement. Trying to make the internet a little bit of a nicer, more beautiful place uh, where there's real life people. Uh, sharing their story, sharing their struggles, and uh, any way that I can be a help to you, an encouragement to you, um, I'd love to hear from you and I help you along any way I can and uh, share a little of my uh, small experiences and, and, and maybe it can be helpful to you um, or not. So we're all adults here. You can do whatever you want. I don't care. Um, anyway, I'm so thankful and honored that you listen to this show and I look forward to putting out more interviews for you and more ideas for you and to help us along in our creative journeys, whatever those may entail. But before I sign off, 
go make some great art with your life. I'll talk to you real, real soon.